So I'm curious if you, like me, have ever experienced what it's like to be reviled for your faith, to have somebody attack you because you love Jesus and you're trying to live a life that glorifies him. Uh, I still remember the, one of the first times that that happened to me. I was in college and uh, had some buddies on campus who asked me if I'd be willing to go out with them one night. And I said, yeah, but I'm driving because I don't want to get caught or trapped anywhere. And so uh, I was the driver that night. And we went to uh, first uh, a party that they wanted to go to, a friend's house. And uh, I noticed that they were drinking a lot. And I smelt uh, a little bit of what I thought might be marijuana in the background. I said, hey, guys, it might be good to do something else tonight. And so uh, we, we said, uh, okay, let's do something else. So we went to one of my buddy's houses. Uh, this guy, we were at his house. And they started watching videos. And I was like, I don't think this is good, and so I'm going to go outside. Uh, it was also raining, which was awkward, and so I guess they felt bad for me after a couple of hours and decided to, um, it wasn't that long, uh, but we decided to go and uh, go back to the, the dorms, and as I was driving on the way, uh, I remember one of them just said, uh, they started sort of talking amongst themselves, and it was super awkward. They were like, man, you're like, like good. Like, not like us. Like, you're good. Like, we like to do bad things, but you, you're different. I kid you not, like, in this way. And I'm feeling, like, super awkward. And, um, like, they were saying good, I think, as a pejorative, like, as a bad thing. And uh, as I went along, they said, why do you, like, why do you not like the stuff that we like? And uh, here's what happened in my own heart in that moment. This isn't like a Hero Josh moment. This is a, a moment where I said, you know what? Like, I feel really awkward right now and a little bit scared to tell them about why I'm different. Um, and so, like, the, the best that I could get out of a testimony in that moment was because uh, I love Jesus, like, whatever that means. The second thing that I realized was I really had never seen anybody share Christ with someone else, uh, especially when they were coming at them with some heat. And uh, I realized I didn't really understand how to articulate the gospel really clearly in that moment in the way that I wanted to. Well, I wish that I had had a little bit of time with our text this morning. See, we're in 1 Peter 13, uh, 3, 13 to 17 that Sarah just read. And in this text, what Peter is actually doing is trying to help us to understand how it is that we need to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have in us. Uh, we need to be always gospel ready. And so we're back in our Hopeful Exile sister, uh, uh, series uh, in 1 Peter this morning. And what we're going to see by way of refresher, uh, we've seen so far that Apostle, the Apostle Peter writes this letter to a mostly Gentile audience, churches in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. That's modern day Turkey. And they, he's writing to them as they are facing really various and sporadic persecutions. In other words, it's mostly social pressure, but at times we find that there was some intense political pressure. It's not always consistent, but they were facing different trials and sufferings of all kinds of different natures. And here we find uh, Peter picking up where he began in 1 Peter 3.8 on this section where he's telling Christians to bless their enemies. But here in verse 13, what we find is Peter's heart begins to throb again. We've seen it throughout where his pastoral heart kind of beats to the hearts of his people, anticipating the desperate questions that erupt from the hearts of those who are seeking to honor, honor Jesus through their suffering. He, he senses that and he begins to speak to that. He begins to speak to the question that, that we have in our hearts and these types of questions like, does my suffering mean that God's abandoned me? And if you've suffered, you, you've felt that, you've asked that question, does this suffering mean that God is absent or that he is drawing away from me? Or maybe you've asked yourself uh, as you've been in suffering whether or not you have messed up in some way that God is against you. Or, or that maybe even you've messed up so badly that your future is in jeopardy. You know, can there be any good that comes 
from this suffering. And though this text aims most clearly at social pressure or reviling coming from non-Christians towards Christians, I believe that what we're going to see is a multifaceted application for all of us facing a variety of trials. But maybe you're thinking this morning uh, that you're not suffering so much as a Christian. Uh, And maybe you think that my aim is to make you feel guilty for not suffering like others are. That's not it. Uh, I want you to know that I hope you have a great life. You're always healthy. Uh, You live long. Jesus comes back before you die, and that's how it ends for you. That's my hope for you. Uh, That's my hope for me. Uh, But things don't always tend to work out that way, do they? And so you might be thinking, like, what does this have to do with me? And uh, let me just say, I think this is good for you in a couple of ways. The first is uh, that it is likely that someday you're going to suffer in some way. And God is preparing you now in this peaceful time for that storm that's coming. And I think that's all of us to some degree lightly. But, but another way that you need to be thinking about this, and I think just thinking about preaching and teaching in general, you know, God is always preparing you not just for what's coming at you, but for what's coming to others that you're going to be around. God is equipping you to speak life into the lives of others. And you need to take this opportunity just to get ready to help somebody that you love deeply who's going to go through suffering to have a word for them. And maybe uh, this morning you're thinking, I don't really fit into any of these categories. I'm not a Christian. And I want you to know that Peter's going to confront you with some important questions as well. Your suffering is basic to the human experience, but, but meaning and an ironclad hope amidst suffering is unique to the Christian experience. And that's, a, that's something that we're going to look at today. So what hope, if you are a non-Christian, let me just ask you to be thinking about this throughout, drags you out of bed in the morning when life gets dark? Doesn't it feel like this life is really about something more than just an endless cycle of suffering that's eventually punctuated by death? I think you know that in your heart. You long for that. So what hope is it that you're looking to? Well, this morning we're going to find that Peter gives us great hope, a unique hope, a Christian hope, a hope that is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, our big idea is this. It is that the fear of our risen King Jesus makes us gospel brave before earthly fears. The fear of our risen King Jesus makes us gospel brave before earthly fears. And that's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We pray with me. We need his help. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you because you are our good and sovereign God. We know that you have good plans for us, that you are working in our lives even through our sufferings. But God, as we come to this text this morning, we are human, we are fallen, and even in Christ, we need the help of your Holy Spirit for us to see straight. Lord, we have crooked sight, and we need you to help us to see this world and you and others in the way that you see them. And so God, we ask that you would help us through your Spirit to help see you clearly this morning. Father, my words are not enough. We need your spirit to help us. And it is the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. Well, the first point is this. First thing we see, verses 13 to 14, is that blessed people suffer. Blessed people suffer. It doesn't sound much like the prosperity gospel, does it? Well, verses 13 to 14 really are going to set the stage for how Christians ought to think about suffering generally. Now, he's going to get specific in verse 15, but here he's just giving us some general thoughts. And he says this. Uh, Notice what he says in verses 13 to 14. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. 
Um, you'll notice that Peter asks a very important question. He says, who can harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Now, I've wrestled with this text all week, uh, but I think that what Peter's saying is that Christians who obey the law don't typically get hurt for obedience. Uh, You don't usually get pulled over for speeding if you don't speed, right? If you're driving the, the limit. Like, that's just kind of the nature of the way that this world typically works, In fact, God established government for our good. We've already seen that just just a few moments ago in in 1 Peter 3, further up in the book. See, that's that's the way that the world tends to work. Now, I think that this also tells us that the pressure here is more social than political. Because notice, he doesn't say, everybody's a Christian and everybody's attacking us right now. That's not the way that he describes it. Instead, what he says is, sometimes you will suffer. Now, we also need to recognize up front, sometimes we can bring suffering on ourselves through our our sins or our unwise decisions. But that's not what he's talking about here. See, what Peter clearly is isolating is a very unique case, a specialized case. He's talking about the harms and dangers that can terrorize those who are actually zealous for doing good. Those who are in the process of seeking to be faithful to Christ. He's speaking to them. And that means the person who is earnestly committed to the side of good and not evil. That person. So if you're suffering harm while seeking good, you know what it feels like to live in a world without oxygen. You've you've probably sensed that before, where you feel like the breath has been knocked out of you, and you have no idea if the world will ever have a breath of oxygen for you again. You know that feeling. Like when you get fired without just cause. Or, or when you get diagnosed with brain cancer, like a friend of mine recently did. Or when your husband dies, or your dad dies, or the boyfriend that you thought was the one tells you that God told him that you are not the one. See, it's in those moments that you can become a lot like Job and his friends, right? In your, your own mind, you know what I'm talking about? That, that Job-like voice that says, man, if things are this bad, you must have done something horrible. Like, that's the only thing that can explain this, is that God is against you. Now, it's bad enough when your friends tell that, but it's when you, in your own mind and heart, begin to to wrestle over that word and begin to question whether or not God is truly for you. That happens when suffering hits, hits you. And that's why we need to read our Bibles carefully, so that we don't read a verse like this and rip it out of its context and imagine in our minds that good people don't get hurt. That's just not the reality of the world around us. See, godly people, zealous for good, can be harmed. And God's not just using your suffering to force you into a game of of Where's Waldo. Y'all remember those books, Where's Waldo, right? Okay, if you don't, it's like this little guy in like this striped shirt, and you get this picture full of like a billion people dressed kind of like him, and your job is to sort of find it, right? And sometimes I think that when sin hits us or when bad things hit us, we start to ask ourselves, man, is God playing Where's Waldo with my soul? Like there's some kind of thing that I've done wrong that I didn't even know was wrong, and, and like now he's against me. Well, catch this. I think when we suffer, we ought to see if whether or not we are sinning against God and need to repent of that. But so often, if it's not clear to us that we've sinned against God and, and things are hard, what it really means is not that we have perform some kind of, you know, hidden sin that God is looking for us like a game to find. He's not playing games with our lives. It actually just happens to be that we live in a broken world, and it testifies to the fact that we need Jesus to come back and fix things, not just someday, but now. 
There's an urgency that suffering creates in our souls. An urgency to see Christ's face more clearly. An urgency for Jesus to come back and set things right in a world that we can come so comfortable and complacent in. See, I think that's why verse 14 is so clarifying and important. If you read 13, read 14. In fact, I would read the whole book of 1 Peter up to 13 and then 14 and then on to understand what Peter is saying. But it's there that we find that there are innocent sufferers who look like Jesus, okay? Imperfectly, but truly in the sense that they are innocent sufferers. And he says there, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I I take righteousness' sake to actually speak of living for Christ as Lord, okay? So if you're living for righteousness' sake, I believe this is a picture of what it looks to follow Jesus faithfully. But notice that he also says that you can be both blessed and suffer at the same time. Two words that seem to be kind of opposite, and yet here he just places right together as a coherent reality that is happening simultaneously. Now, as we look at this, uh, I know they sound like anonyms or, or opposites, Uh, But I'd also have to say that it's not just a word that looks on paper like opposite. It's something that really you feel like it's opposite, right? And your experience is that it's opposite. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, like I've been on Facebook more than like ever recently, like which is like not at all. Um, That's the past. Now it's um, like sometimes. And, um, And sometimes I get annoyed and so I stop. But when I'm, when I'm looking at Facebook, one thing I've learned, uh, really fascinating, I, I never see anybody taking selfies of themselves at either like the DMV or like at the medical clinic with their kid and, and then, you know, putting something like hashtag the blessed life, right? Like, man, I'm suffering it up, feeling especially blessed today. Like I just, that's not my natural reaction and that's not the testimony of Facebook. But what I do know is, is that blessed is a word that, that seems to seem even more awkward next to suffering when you think about what it means. It, it's a word that means a state of happiness for, Houston, for humans when they are blessed. See, blessed is actually, in this text, just a single adjective. It looks like a sentence, you know, I, you will be blessed, but it's actually just an adjective that just ends with blessed. It doesn't really describe what it means by that. So we have to think a little bit about what does it mean here to be blessed? It could mean that you will be blessed in the future. That, that, that's one possibility. Or it could mean that you're, like, you're just blessed. Like now, like just now, or maybe now and forever. He doesn't really clarify, but I think that it might be clearer than we think. See, I think that it's actually both. I think that here blessed is both present and future because that's how Jesus used it. It's an already not yet reality of enjoying a blessed status and looking forward to a blessed future. It's kind of like eternal life that begins with salvation and and points far into the future. See, this word blessed, when I read it and when we read it as Christians and when his audience would have read it, I believe would have been transported back to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Peter would have heard Jesus say these words and listen in close After saying, blessed, blessed, blessed are these different kinds of people, or people that are this way, he says this in verses 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for, catch this, righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice 
and be glad. For your reward is great in, in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus says those who suffer for righteousness' sake are blessed because they identify with King Jesus and his kingdom. And they rejoice. They are happy in their suffering because it reveals that their future reward in heaven is great. See, Jesus says that we are blessed and we will be blessed. That's what he says. I think that's what Peter is getting at. See, faithfulness amidst suffering is a work of God. Did you catch that? Your faithfulness as you suffer, one of the, the points of the blessing and the pictures of the blessings and the evidence of God's blessing is that you are faithful and your faithfulness is God's work in you. It demonstrates that God himself will finish the work that he started with us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Friends, that's a blessed existence and identity. We, we call this perseverance of the saints. I, I like what Louis Burkhoff says in his systematic theology about perseverance of the saints. If that's, if that's a new term for you, he says this. He says, perseverance is that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer, by which the work of divine grace that has begun in the heart is continued and brought about to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. Do you see it? There's a picture of the grace of God and our persevering through suffering. We persevere because God preserves us. Isn't that good news? That we are not resting on our own strength to spiritually hold ourselves up to the end. And those moments when we feel like we're white knuckling it and we can't do it ourselves anymore, it is God himself that is holding us. And it's because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to that very end. Only God's grace enables us to say with David in Psalms 56, 4, And God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Or Paul in Romans eight thirty one: If God be for us, who can be against us? So our ultimate identification with Christ is secure such that we will persevere because of who God is. But there's a second thing that we see here in verses 15, or 14b to 15b, and that's this. Revering Christ cures fearing people. Revering Christ cures fearing people. Here you'll notice that Peter is taking aim at the fear of man. And he does this by pointing back to Isaiah Eight. What's interesting, this isn't the first time that he's looked at Isaiah 8. So if you're like, I don't even know what happens in Isaiah 8, apparently it was pretty dominant in his mind. Uh, he's already spoken of uh, the stones of uh, first, or first Peter 2 uh, from uh, Isaiah 8, 14. But here what he does is he actually drops back a verse to verse 13 and quotes that. Now, let me just bring you up to speed. We don't need to turn back to Isaiah 8 right now. But here's what's going on. King Ahaz... He is the king of Judah. He is absolutely terrified of the kings of Aram and Israel who have turned against him and are threatening him. And so in this fear, uh, we find that this king is looking everywhere for help. He is looking to the king of Assyria, who, by the way, ultimately is a king who wants to destroy everybody, not the greatest person to look to. Uh, and he is fearful and controlled by his fear of these kings. The threat is real. I mean, if Judah is destroyed, the line of David, through whom God promised to bring the Messiah, who would deliver his people and make them great and restore them, 
would actually end with this man who is in David's line. And so they had to ask, would God's promises die with Ahaz if Ahaz died? King Ahaz is looking everywhere but God for help. And God says in Isaiah 8.13 these words that are quoted in 1 Peter. He says, the Lord Almighty is the one who you are to regard as holy. He is the one that you are to fear. He is the one who you are to dread. Now Peter paraphrases that in our verses here where he identifies Jesus as Lord saying this, have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Now, I I love that of all people in the Bible, Peter says this. Can you think of why? Peter, the expert on fear of cowards. He's a famed, zealous disciple who cut off a servant's ear to protect Jesus just hours before denying Jesus three times before a girl and then the rooster crow. Why? Why would Peter say something like this? Well, because he, like Ahaz, suffered from what the Bible calls fear of man. That's why he denied Jesus before this girl. And fear of man, that's just a technical term that we find uh, to describe people treating other people like gods, right? That's what fear of man is. It's people treating other people like gods who control their being, their loves, their desires, their dreams, their, their thoughts. It's somebody who wraps somebody up and actually directs their lives in a way that they should not. And Ed Welch, he says this in his book. He says, it's really this fear of man. It's making people big and God small. And that's what fear of man is. Peter feared Roman and Jewish authorities. He feared being arrested. He feared the servant girl's opinion of him to the point that he was willing to deny Jesus three times, saying essentially, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. That's the testimony of Peter, the apostle. And Peter not only denied the man, but he denied the God-man, the only man that he needed to fear and worship and trust and love, and he turned his back on that God-man. I want you just to come in close for just a minute. Justin, come in close. Not fearing man and setting Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts. It is not two things, it is one thing. See, revering Christ is the only cure for fearing people. If you want to cure yourself of fear that controls you of other people, and all kinds of other people, whether it is a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or a boss or your enemies, what you need is you need to revere Christ more. That's what you do. So both of these things go hand in hand. See, Peter, we find here that needed, he needed to revere Christ more. Revering Christ is the only cure for fearing people. But Peter's use of Isaiah here, I think, catch this, it might not be as random as it seems at first blush. Just think about this. I thought a lot about this this week. King Ahaz looked for the earthly king of Assyria to save him from other earthly kings, and that's the fear of man. But Ahaz's fear in Isaiah 8 is coming right on the heels of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 of the king high and lifted up. Are you with me? Do you remember that? Do you remember what happened there? It was in Isaiah 6 that we find Isaiah transported into this vision of the Lord himself. And when he saw the Lord, it says in verses 1 to 3, it was in the year that King Uzziah, that great king, died, as all earthly kings do. 
I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Can you imagine that vision? And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim calling out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the image that we get of God. But do you see it? Ahaz feared earthly kings because he did not set up the Lord as holy, holy, holy in his heart. And likewise, Peter, the zealous disciple of Jesus, said, I do not know the man, I do not know the man, I do not know the man. Because he had yet to see Christ raised from the dead, declaring with all authority in heaven on earth, all of this has been given to me. And then he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father, high above every earthly power. And don't miss this. Great kings and little girls alike will terrorize and control us if we do not revere the Lord Jesus alone as holy, holy, holy in our hearts. That is the most intimate resources or recesses of who we are. We must see Christ as holy. See, Peter didn't fear little girls anymore. You'll remember the testimony of Peter. How did that great coward go to be a great martyr? It is because he saw Christ as lifted up and having all authority. And it was in that that something changed in Peter that he didn't have to fear little girls anymore because he saw the greatness of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he didn't fear the authorities that would later come for him and even the death that they would put him through. He didn't even fear death itself. Why? Because Jesus was humbled to death before being exalted above every power and given a name above every name. As Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 1 Peter 3, 22, uh, we'll see that this section ends with Peter saying this. He, he speaks of Christ, reminding them of Christ, who has gone into heaven. Did you catch that? Don't miss that. That's where he's going. And is, is at God's right hand, enthroned with angels, authorities, and power in submission to him. This is the great Jesus that Peter saw that changed his life and the way that he views others. Not only that, in the book of Revelation, we find that Jesus' greatness even extends into the realm of life and death. We're told in Revelation, as we saw in a class just this last Wednesday, that Jesus himself holds the keys of death. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you have the keys to it, you own it, right? And Jesus is here saying, I have the keys to death. I unlock and lock the door. Like I have the freedom to let out whom I will. God says here that Jesus is sovereign even over death. Do you see that? Do you see that? And how do you do this? How do you you become someone who is brave for the gospel when you are by nature someone who is a coward? What turns a zealous coward who denies Christ into an unflinching witness even to the point of death. Well, it was seeing Christ dead and then alive and then ascended and seated next to the Father. See, that reorients everything. As you see that more and more, it reorients everything. In fact, the more, if you want to change your life, the more that you look to and meditate on and study God's word and and around God's people and thinking about and learning about the greatness of Christ, everything else changes. The way that you view everyone else changes. No longer are people big and those who you need to go and look to for resources and you're thinking about, I've got something I need to get from them, but instead you realize the greatness of Christ who gave you everything that's made you an heir of the kingdom so that you are about relationships that are giving and not taking. God changes everything in Christ. 
I like what D.A. Carson says in his commentary about this verse. He says, Jesus Christ, we are here to set him apart as holy and confess his lordship. Catch this in our thinking, in the way that we think, in our responses. Like, is Jesus sovereign over the way that you respond to others? Do you think about that? What about in our speech, in the things that we say, or in our choices, our daily choices? I mean, we're told to eat or drink to the glory of God, and in our relationships. Or our relationships, do we understand that those are ultimately about Jesus even more than us? Like, if we start to understand that more and more, our lives will change. We will change. But there's a third thing that we see here. That's this. That fearing Christ makes us ready to make a lucid defense for our hope. Fearing Christ makes us ready to make a lucid defense for our hope. We see that in verses 15b and 16. Now, I, I thought about entitling this section, Don't Be a Jerk to Jerks. Um, but I didn't think that was gentle. And so I, I changed it to what we have. And I also thought that sounded too negative. But notice what it looks like when Christ is exalted in your heart. I think we get a picture of that. Here's what he says. Peter says that we always need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Now Peter says to always be prepared. Uh, that word really just means to be ready. Always be ready. Ready to make a defense or, or an ap apologetic, right? To anyone that asks about your hope. Now, when we read this, I think this assumes a couple of things, doesn't it? Two or three. I mean, first, you'll notice that Peter's speaking to all Christians. So he's saying all Christians are, at least in some sense, apologists. We are people who need to be ready to give a defense for our hope. That means that every Christian should know enough about the gospel to defend the faith, uh, the basics of the faith. Now, not every Christian is a professional apologists like Justin Martyr or Alvin Plantinga or Ravi Zacharias, but every Christian should be able to articulate those basic truths of the gospel to anyone ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, that's why every member that joins our church, we, we ask them to explain the gospel to us in 60 seconds or less. It's not a race. It's not a, a test that you like pass or fail. We think that this is actually basic Christianity, right? You need to basically understand what it is that makes you a Christian, not just for you, but also for others who you will bear testimony of the gospel to. We take the gospel seriously. Of course, I think it also assumes the second and third thing, this, this verse. Uh, I think that it assumes that your life looks different from others, right? If somebody's noticing that you are different and asking you why, it means that there's something different about you than other people that you're around that are not Christians. And a third thing is that you display hopefulness in your life even while suffering. Because did you know what he, he says? He says they need, to under, they need to ask and you need to be able to explain why you have hope amidst this suffering. They're going to ask. You need to be ready. Which I think assumes that you're kind of like not Eeyore, Right? I mean, some of us have a downcast, like, sort of temperament, and, like, hope is going to look different on t different people, right? It fits some people better. Um, that's cool. But I think that regardless of how God's made you, there should be at least over time, maybe longer for others than uh, some than others, but where people sense that you are a person of hope that is not of this world, that is not tied to your circumstances, that is not tied to your bank account, 
It's not tied to your relationships with others. Ultimately, it's tied to God in Christ and the Holy Spirit and the way that he makes you different. That's why we ask every person uh, that, are, that joins our church to explain the gospel, and that's why uh, we want to encourage week in and week out us to be a hopeful people. I hope that we as a church are known as a people of hope. But take note, revering Christ, it not only kills fearing others, but it gives birth to hope. Did, did, did you hear that? If you fear Christ, it shouldn't make you sad and scared, but it should make you a, a person who is hopeful. Hopeful for the future that he has for you. Hopeful for his present ability to help you. Of course, here again, as um, Tom Schreiner says, hope is an eschatological word for Peter. That just means Peter uses hope to speak of the promised coming future for those who are in Christ, the blessed ones. He goes on to say the implication here is that unbelievers will recognize by the way believers respond to difficulties that their hope is in God rather than in their pleasant earthly circumstances. Let me just ask you this morning, like real, real point blank question. Like maybe you're going through some unpleasant circumstances right now. But is there anyone who could look at you in your difficult life right now and say there is a different way that they are thinking about and hoping in this situation than someone who does not have Christ? And if not, this is not meant to make you feel guilty. It's actually to give you hope. That Christ wants more for you. He doesn't want you in some closet in the dark in the fetal position when you go through difficult things. He wants you to look to him. And this is an invitation to look to him afresh. You know, we heard this kind of thing at our, our Pulse meeting last week, didn't we? We heard those encouraging testimonies. Uh, Carissa Bernack was sharing her testimony about a time when life got hard. She cried out to God, sought his face, and she says, you know, something changed. My circumstances did not change. Circumstances did not change, but my heart did. My heart towards God. And that's what God has called us to, is to have hearts that are filled with the exalted Christ. Now, have you noticed uh, sometimes also that apologists, like professional ones that you listen to, sound kind of angry? Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's just me. I listen to this stuff. I'm like, they've got good content. But they sound very angry. And Peter says it shouldn't be that way for Christians. Uh, People who are defending the faith should not be an angry people. They should be a a hopeful people. He says it this way, you're defending the faith and your hope should be done with gentleness and respect. Should be done with gentleness and respect. Now, I'm not a fan of this wording um, because I'm not gentle. No, that's, it's, it's actually, I think that it's maybe not as clear in the English as it could be. See, that word for respect is actually the same word for fear. Uh, Phobos, Uh, It's the same word that we found in verse 14 where we're told not to fear anyone that might harm you. And here he says, okay, you need to be gentle and fear them. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. See, I think what he's saying here is that you need to be gentle towards them and have a healthy fear of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's something else that a fear of the Lord does. I think it's, it's a message here. If we really have experienced the fear of the Lord, it doesn't make us angry and hostile. It actually makes us gentle makes us grateful, makes us hopeful. And brothers, some of us, maybe some of you sisters as well, struggle with hearts that tend to like to win, uh, hearts that tend to like to be right. I don't know anybody like that. But if you're like that, then you know that, that you need to be reminded of this. If it's of the Spirit, it's gentle. It's hopeful. It's not angry and hostile. It gives testimony to the, the gentleness of Jesus Christ and his gentleness towards us. And that's why we have a good conscience. We do what we believe to be good and honorable before Christ, before whom we will give an account. 
Now, did you catch the purpose of giving a defense for our hope here? He gives us the purpose of it. He says, gentleness describes how we should treat non-Christians as we proclaim Christ. That's how we should do it. And the fear of Christ makes us gentle. But he also says something very interesting at the end there. Did you notice that he says that it, it is for the sake of those who are around us? Now, I just, before I go to this next verse, just want to, um, or next part of the verse, I just wanted to um, point out quickly my theology of jerks. I think it's important. You heard that right, my theology of jerks. We all have our moments, trust me. My brothers and sisters have seen me have my moments. But Christians should really never be jerks. That's true. I think that's theological. We are all being sanctified, right, in different places, and we want to be patient with one another. Uh, Sometimes the hardest person to be patient with is the person who is, like, a little angry and upset and hostile. But not all Christians, not all non-Christians are jerks either. In fact, most I've met are not. Sometimes it's hard when you see non-Christians who are just more gentle than many Christians. And and, and then you know that some non-Christians are they are. In fact, uh, I love a story about my wife. She, um, she had uh, cancer, and she lost her hair. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that, like, um, jerks congregate on the interstate, right? They drive around. They cut people off. They drive big trucks and um, give you signs that you think are to turn, but they're not. And she got one of those signs one day, um, and she was just having a really tough day. She was, like, literally en route from chemo, late to pick the kids up. And, uh, you know, he gives her the sign. He's like, I don't like you, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so Carrie, she's, she's working through this, right? And so she grabs her wig and takes it off and goes, uh! <laughs> to which he's like, oh! You know, and then, like, sorry, you win. Um, so, you know, maybe not the best response, but I loved it. And we're all working through this, right? <clears throat> And if you're a non-Christian, maybe it is that you've met Christians that have been jerks too. Please know that if, if that's you, you, you know Christians that have been jerks, that they've lived in ways that you're like, that's ugly. Uh, if it's ugly, it's not Jesus. You know, we, we have Christians who have failed. We have people that have claimed to be Christians that are not Christians. Um, and I just want to say that you need to know that they, those Christians that have been jerks to you, they're at least not being very good Christians, and at worst, not actually truly fearing Jesus Christ. And know that on the last day, this is important if you're a non-Christian, a jerk Christian is no excuse before Jesus for not seeking peace with God that only his death and resurrection can provide. Now, I think that's why the rest of, what the rest of verse 16 means. Uh, I think this, now come in close because this verse could sound really ugly if you don't like understand what I think is going on here. Notice that he says at the end of verse 16, you, you do this, you have this good testimony of the hope within you, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, there is a way to take this. I'm not sure it's right. Some people hold this, that you need to have a really good testimony. When people are mean, just deep down in your heart, you need to know one day God's going to get you. Maybe that's right. But the purpose, I think, of our gentle defense is that, the, that those catch this. Those who don't respond in faith will be put to shame before Christ on the last day. Now, I know you're saying that doesn't sound gentle, but come, come in close again. Should we want them to be saved? Absolutely. And Peter says as much in 1 Peter 2.12. But there his goal is that our witness will lead to the salvation and rescue of the lost. But here I think is the point, and here's the heart of the point here in this very verse. It's Christian Don't let the incongruity of your life and your words give non-Christians any reason for not believing on the last day. Have you thought about that? 
Like, maybe we need to be a little bit more concerned about the lives of others than our own, like, slate of perfectionism, right? Like, we, we, we think of doing right so often based on how people view us, but how often do you think about how your life affects the faith of others? Do you ever want anybody to have to go before the throne room of Jesus one day and feel justified for not following him as Savior by mentioning your name? And if that's what a Christian looks like, God, it just wasn't fair. Absolutely not. Now, that's not going to justify that person by any means, but I would never want my life to actually be an excuse, even for a moment in the life of another, for not putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So let your life add to their guilt for not believing rather than adding to a reason not to believe. And brothers and sisters, never let your life be a reason for someone not to believe. Uh, You know, so much of what our kids, just by way of example, so much of what our kids learn is more caught than taught. Have you noticed that? Like often what I love is I can just watch my kids and see all of my failures on display. Right? I'm like, why do you do that? Like, because you do it, Dad. Right? I mean, we show up to McDonald's and Benjamin's like, I'd like a large Diet Coke with light ice. And I'm like, who orders that? Like, you! Like, they, they, they catch it. And so I'm just wondering, do, your, do our lives at home show off the reality that we believe that Jesus is holy in our hearts? And it is a good thing. It is a good thing that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And it makes us gentle and kind and hopeful. And they can palpably see it, not just in our words and the way that we talk about the gospel, but in the way that we love them and others. Now, I'm not talking about perfection here, but I'm talking about them seeing that we are zealous to do good because Jesus is on the throne. I still remember a conversation I had um, with someone I look up to a lot, Wayne Grudem, about raising kids. And he was telling me about another theological hero of mine, and he said that that person who has written books on raising children actually said that if he could change one thing in raising his kids, It would not be that they would have more devotions because they had plenty of devotions. But it's that his kids and him and his wife would have so much more fun together. That they would know that their actual devotion to Jesus worked out into joy in the home more. That they would enjoy them. That their kids would not question whether or not they delighted in them because of who Christ was. Adults, I think, are the same way. I hope that I leave my non-Christian friends with a palpable sense that their attitudes towards me will not deter my calling to be gentle and hopeful before them and for them. And don't miss this. When you suffer, people watch more closely. When they are reviling you, I can't tell you how many people have attacked me and have told me later that in that moment, they found that it was really their heart's attitude towards God testing me, testing the waters of the God that I said and professed that I believed in. You know, as I look at my relationships and I just, I, I pray more and more that non-Christians and, and those around me just sense the love of God, that that's what they leave with. And don't miss this. When you suffer, people are watching more c- closely, and it's an opportunity to leverage the hope of the gospel to the eternal good of others, or to crawl back into that dark closet and assume the fetal position. We have that choice. Isn't it so much better to love and to suffer to the glory of God? Let's never allow anyone to use us as an excuse for not becoming to Christ. But there's the last thing that we see here in our text, and that's this. Our sovereign God is at work, even in our suffering. And I wish I had tons of time for this, but I don't. But catch this. This is what he says. Verse 17. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So catch this. God is sovereign even in our sufferings. Now Peter's going to talk more about this later, and we'll hit that later. But for now, Peter sounds so much like Paul in Romans 8, 28, doesn't he? And we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that all things work together for good. Now here's the real deal of Christianity. We believe happiness and holiness actually go together just like sin and sadness do, right? Happiness and holiness really do go together in the same way that sin and sadness do. Now, here's why that sounds funky to you. It's because Satan's at work, right? And he's constantly trying to flip the script. He's trying to tell us in our hearts that actually sin and happiness go together and sorrow and holiness go together. And so you need to stay away from the holiness stuff or it's going to make you really sad. Well, that's actually the opposite of the way that God created the world. You know, a few years back, we had a a missionary that was staying in our home from Scotland. John, you might remember him, super gentle brother. Um, What I love is that he went back to Scotland with the vision that what the Vincents are like is actually what all Americans are like. So I'm sorry for that. But one of the things I love to do is he's super humble and kind and gracious, super gentle spirit, right? And uh, I love to mess with him about stuff, just acting like things were normal that were not. I know that's bad. Um, I'm, I'm being sanctified too, guys. But in the midst of that, he says, um, hey, um, <clears throat> I'm kind of hungry. I said, that's great, man. Why don't I make you a sandwich? Uh, how do you like, like, peanut butter and mayonnaise and pickles? And I've got some hot peppers that sound good. And he just looks at me like, and he's real polite, but he's like, what? Like, how in the world do those things go together? And he says, are you serious? I said, oh, yeah, it's the best. And then I asked Jack, and Jack's like, oh, yeah, it's the best. Because <laughs> um, he got it. He wanted to play. And so... <clears throat> In the end, we started actually going to make the sandwich. He's like, no, I don't want, I, I just can't. I, I just can't. And so we didn't obviously make him the sandwich. But the reason that he looked at us so strange is he was like, man, those things just don't seem like they go together. Like, who puts mayonnaise and peanut butter together? And if you do, like, every man for himself, that's fine. But he thought it was strange. And so, like, in that moment, he was just really confused. And I think that sometimes... We get really confused as Christians because the world that we live in about the nature of what it looks like to be happy in Christ, it doesn't mean that you're always absent of suffering and difficulty and challenges. Like those things actually go together. And Jesus doesn't hide hide that from us. He shows us that what it means to love God, what it means to be happy is to be holy. And there's no way to happiness apart from holiness in Christ. Now, an important note here is that we might not always understand why God has brought suffering our way. But we trust that no suffering goes unnoticed or wasted by God because he is sovereign. God doesn't stand behind good and evil in the same way either though, right? We've talked about it before. There's an asymmetrical way in which God stands behind good and evil. He is sovereign over all things. Job kind of explains this, doesn't he? You remember when Satan comes in and says like, let me take all this stuff from Job and he'll curse you and die. And God says, no, he's mine. Like you can bring whatever you want his way. He's not, he's not turning. And the rest of the book shows how Satan systematically is allowed to take things away from Job. And God is glorified. And we don't see exactly an actual meaning in the book of Job for like why he has to go through this. But what we do see is, is that God is absolutely sovereign and Satan is on a short leash. And that God will be glorified and he never lets Job go. See, God is, is sovereign even in suffering, working things out for our good and his purposes. And we trust that the purposes of God are good because God himself is the ground of our hope. And we can trust that God's not a bully because he has entered into our sufferings with us. Jesus Christ died for our sins to bring us peace with God. 
He was also raised from the dead to demonstrate that he holds the keys to death. He owns it and that he promises us eternal life with new bodies and a new creation, free from sin and sorrow and Satan and death forever. And being united with God forever is a certain reality. That is our ironclad hope. So Jesus, the innocent sufferer, greater than Job, who is in heaven, he is there with our inheritance, daily calling us home. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, the sovereignty God, sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night. Amen? Giving perfect peace where there should be none. That's what God does for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we come before you and we confess, Father, that we all struggle to some degree with the fear of man. And we need more of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we need more of Jesus in our hearts. More of Jesus in the way that we think. In the way that we speak. In the way that we live. And so God, this morning we just ask that you would use your word to do more than what we could attribute to any words that have been spoken today. That you would, by the power of your spirit, be transforming and shaping us into new creatures. Creatures that give glory to you, that hope in the darkness and turn others towards that otherworldly hope. And it's the great name of your son, Jesus, that brings us that hope that we do pray. Amen.